Today. We're going to have one of my guests on today who once told me to just stick to my briefcase and stay off the stage. I didn't take his advice. I should have, but fuck, I'm a little like him. I don't like taking other people's advice. Anyway, if you happen to stumble upon us here today, uh, this little program is called Ren Man Live. And for all of you folks out there that are dreaming of a life in the music biz, I ask you to take a look at this face and ask yourself why you'd want to do that but I likely won't talk you out of it. So if you are looking to do something big in this music business, uh, you're probably in the right place today. Um, for about the last three and a half years, against my better judgment, I've been getting together with some of the smartest, uh, most talented people in the music business to share their wisdom, advice, and experience with folks like yourselves that are just out there getting started. So if you showed up today and want to learn something about this music business, uh, I want to give you a bit of advice. And that is as follows. If you don't ask, you don't get. You don't lurk in anything, folks. If you got a question about the music business, don't be lurking at the back of the classroom or right up to the front. Um, as I mentioned, folks, for all you folks that are looking to do something big in the music business, uh, we have somebody that's going to help you deal. We have our lady by the name of Killer Kira Neal, who's right over there who's going to be taking your questions, <laughs> probably not right now, but we have a whole bunch of questions for all you folks that are advanced planners that posting them in advance. And so we'll be talking to those folks and asking those uh, questions along the way. All right, uh, still nothing over there, Kier? No. Okay, well, we're going to post this a little bit later, folks, and so put a little note there and say we're having some technical difficulties, and we'll post it up as soon as we're done. Um, my guest today is a man who has made an indelible impact on my perspective as a music professional, as a manager. Every once in a while you meet somebody in your life, if you're lucky, where you just make an instant connection. And that was certainly the case with my friend today. Uh, he was one of my second, my second management client ever, which meant that I really didn't know much about being a manager at all, and he probably suffered as a result of it. Um, he and his band, The Wonder Stuff, had a huge amount of success in the UK back in the late 80s. They had number one singles, they had hit singles and big selling records all across England. Uh, they played huge headline gigs, huge festival gigs all around Europe. Um, and he recently wrote a book that chronicles the story of his band. I have it right here. It's called The Wonder Stuff, The Diaries, 86 to 89. And you see I've got quite a bit of notes in here about it. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about that today. Um, in many ways, that book, which is written in a kind of a diary form with some, some, uh, some additional comments added by Miles, is really, you know, chronicles the beginning of the band, but really it should be a textbook about how to build a band. Um, it offers uh, lots of advice and examples of things to do and not to do, but it's a reminder of how fragile this music business is on the best of days. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, would you please welcome my good friend, Mr. Miles Hunt. There he is. Hello, Miles. Hey, how you doing, Renman? Yeah. Uh, not the kind of crowds uh, that he's used to listening to. Uh, let me get back to you there, Miles. I'll get you in the camera here in a second. Uh, how the heck are you doing today, Miles? It's all good over here. Yeah, I'm actually taking a welcome break. From uh, I'm currently writing the follow-up book to the one that you just so kindly plugged for me, the the Wonder Stuff Diaries '90 to '94. So this is really nice. I'm still staring at screen of a computer, of course, but at least I'm not here 
digging into the minds of my memory, trying to write this second book. All right, good. Now I'm going to get us both in the screen there. Ah, pardon my lack of technical skills, Miles, but you already knew that. Well, first off, I want to say that you sent me this book a while back. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't read it at the time, uh, as you know, as you want to do as a manager. Let me get right on my marks. I have a little spot I marked right here, Miles. Um, but I did spend the whole weekend reading it. And I got to tell you, it's fucking awesome. It reminded me of so many great moments and some uh, interesting moments that we had along, <laughs> had along the way. Uh, and so I thought it'd be a great thing to talk about today. You and I have talked on the phone a million times. I thought it'd be great to share one of those conversations. So first off, let me take, thank you for taking the time to join us uh, today. Pleasure. In spite of the fact that we were supposed to be live on Facebook Live now, but we'll be watching this as a, uh, as a recording here in a little bit, folks. There are plenty of folks that submitted a lot of questions for you in advance, and so we're going to be asking those along the way. Um, and hopefully you'll be able to answer those for some of the folks. Um, as I mentioned, you spent your whole life writing and performing uh, songs in front of hundreds of thousands of people around the world, right? Uh, my first question is, why did you decide to write a book? Uh, I suppose I'm, I'm 50 years old now, and I suppose I started thinking, actually, no, it goes way back into my 20s. I started, uh, I really started to, to read. In school, I wasn't a, good, a decent reader. Uh, by around the time that you and I met, when, when I was coming to California quite a lot, uh, friends of mine introduced me to the writer, not in person, but the, the writer Charles Bukowski, and Bukowski uh, had a, a, a huge effect on me in terms of making me want to read more of the, the stuff that he would nod to in his writings. Uh, I would then go and look for uh, John Fante was, was one of his favorite writers. That I absolutely love him. And so I decided sometime in my late 20s, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to write. I'd like to write a book. And, of course, there was Henry Rollins was... Uh, from the Rollins Bands and Black Flag was publishing his own books at that time, which I was also enjoying. And I thought, you know, this is something I would like to do. But one of the things that Charles Bukowski wrote um, in one of his books was uh, that no one should ever write a sort of autobiographical account of their life until they've passed the age of 40, because no one ain't got shit worth saying until they've hit the magical 40 mark. And I found myself uh, in my 40s, so that's, you know, I broke 40 10 years ago, and starting to put pen to paper on a few ideas, but my sort of factory settings are idle. Um, it took me a lot longer than it should have to get round to writing my first book. And the reason I chose, I knew that the world wasn't waiting for a Miles Hunt biography, but uh, I, I took the advice, you hear it a lot, you know, if, if you're going to write, write about something that you know about. Well, I know about my life and I, and I know about the period that I've, I've been in the music business. So I started there. So my, ultimately, my ambition is to go beyond writing about the one stuff that I've already started a book of fiction. Um, but I thought, you know, I'd start with this one. Uh, there's going to be a follow-up to this in, in, in the next six months. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed the writing process. I, I feel like I've learned a new skill, um, or I'm learning a new skill. I should probably uh, nearer to the mark. And, um, you know, I, I do intend to keep writing music, making records and performing live, but there's probably going to come a point in the next 15 years where I'm not going to want to be on a tour bus and uh, living out of a kit bag. Uh, uh, everybody so sort of everybody says that, Miles, but here we... 
<laughs> but here you're still going. Um, well, I'll tell you what, your first effort uh, only reminded me, you talk in your book about how you didn't spend much time in school, but I reckon you did spend some time in the English class, or we'll just chalk it down to the fact that you lot actually invented the language and do much better with it than us fucking colonials, as Mr. Digby Cleaver called me this morning. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. You know, you made your mark in the music business. Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, 100 now and 31 folks on our show over the last three, four years. And I ask them all the same question because the folks that are watching are on square one just getting started. So I wanted to ask you today, same question I asked them. How did you get started in music? Um, and how did you start this ride? Well, it, I guess it starts with a record collection and, and, a, and a movement of music. You know, for me, I was born in 1966, so, so as a kid, in my first records, it was the glam rock records. It was anything from Bowie, T-Rex, Slade, The Sweet. Um, and that started the obsession, really, of, of collecting seven-inch singles more than albums. By the time you get to the end of the 70s, you've got punk rock and new wave and all the wonderful things that happen after that. Uh, and I'm hooked. I'm a record collector. And my dad was a drummer, a jazz drummer, and his brother was a keyboard player. Uh, who did some time in the Move Electric Light Orchestra and Wizard. So the idea that I, you know, I could learn to play drums, which was my first instrument, and then join a band of contemporaries, mates that had also just got a record collection and nothing else, and certainly none of us had been taught correctly to play instruments. You know, we were finding our own way, but you know, punk rock and new wave said that was the, you know, now the correct way of doing it, and. Um, and then everything, it just happens organically, you know, it's from promoting your own early gigs at village halls or church halls in the area that, you, that we grew up in to then trying to get into the nearest city for us. That was Birmingham in the Midlands in the UK, uh, into the pubs, dirty, sticky back rooms of pubs, uh, you know, honing the craft of uh, dodging glasses, <laughs> being hurt at you, which uh, didn't always get that one right. And uh, and finding contemporaries, basically, that's what you did, whether it was hanging out in, you know, actually they might be on the way back, record shops, the record shops in Birmingham City Centre, there must have been eight or ten of them that we could hang out and you'd meet other kids of your own age and into the similar sort of music. Um, this, of course, all being pre-social media, that we actually used to meet each other physically. No. And go gigs, <laughs> yes. And, and going to gigs and seeing the same faces at gigs. Uh, and just plucking up the courage, you know, what you're listening to, what else you heard. And then before you know it, you're sticking up. Little, I, You know, my dad bought me a drum kit, stuck up uh, an ad in a local music shop. You know, drummer seeks band into Joy Division and Echo and the Bunny Men. And uh, mom and dad's phone number, before you know it, I'm in a band. And that's what I committed to, you know. Uh, I know I've told you before, you know, I did very badly in academia because once I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, the only thing that I wanted to learn was written on record sleeves. That was the only thing I wanted to know Speaking about. of records, we had a bunch of questions. Uh, in, notice that nice segue there, Miles. Um, there was, um, let me see if I can get this up here on the screen properly here. Um, we had a question uh, regarding uh, that, your record collection. I want to play it first from a lady by the name of, uh, there it is. By the name of uh, Claire Miles wanted to know, was there a song or an album in particular that started your love of music? 
Um, I suppose this would go to what my uncle was doing. It, um, it might seem odd to, to for people that didn't experience this, but you know, in 1972, I'm what six, seven years of age, and uh, my uncle's on top of the pops, uh, you know, hacking away at his piano in a band called Wizards. So I don't know any other way of life other than having a family member that's in the rock and pop business. I suppose that was the beginning. Uh, quickly followed by the fact that Slade were huge, you know, great, great four-piece rock and roll band that uh, really made their bones in the in the glam rock scene in England in the in the mid seventies. Then that they were from the area that we lived in, the Midlands, and um, so for me it was a very, it was very, it all felt very personal. Um, Bill being in uh, in Wizard, Slade being nearby, I wasn't wowed by. The likes of David Bowie. I like David Bowie's music, but I, you know, I wasn't wowed by the, the you know, sort of unearthliness of huge rock stars. For me, it felt like if people this close to me can do this, I can do this. I guess is the is the answer. All right. Well, you kind of answered the question, but I'll give her some props here while while, while she's uh, cringing that you didn't that I didn't ask her a question. There was a question by um, let's see who it was. It was. Rachel Bull, who's a Pitt State student here in the United States, um, who asked, uh, was there a musical artist or entertainer that influenced you the most and gave you a reason to be with them? I guess the answer to that is those boys Slade, right? Yes, yeah. Slade and then quickly followed by Punk Rock and New Wave because, again, Punk Rock and New Wave sent me exactly the same message was, you can do this, kid. You know, you didn't have to go away and learn to play as well arguably, as um, uh, uh, somebody like Eric Clapton. I didn't have to become the ginger baker of drums. I could just belt away and having, you know, you know, creating a music that had personality as its unique selling point rather than actual talent. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, it's funny, later on in your career, as I recall, you did a cover of Slade somewhere along the way, did you not? Done, done a few now, yeah. And, and it was interesting reading the book that... Uh, that you'd been contacted by the current members of Slater, a couple of the original guys, about um, doing, uh, what was it, Noddy Holder was a singer, right? Yeah, well, Noddy left years ago. I mean, it's got to be nearly 20 years, if not over 20 years, since Noddy uh, left the band. And then Don Powell and Dave Hill, the drummer and the lead guitarist, have carried on the Slade lineup with a new singer and a new bass player. And uh, did you have something to say there, or should I carry on with No, no, uh, no. There was another question that kind of follows that that'll kind of lead us into this whole thing because I thought your book was a great framework um, to talk about what it takes to uh, to to make a career happen. But one of our uh, our listeners, you know, posted a question that I thought was pretty pretty good one there, and I'll post it up here. It's another one of these folks from Pitt State University, which, just as a little reference point, um, I put together this online course that you and I have discussed, you know, my sad version of a book. <laughs> Very little creativity, most of me waxing philosophical about this fucking whacked out business. Anyway, um, these folks in Kansas, there was a professor by the name of uh, uh, Lyndon DeLecky who called me over the holidays and said, hey, I'd love to have your course be required viewing for our... Um, for our students here, and uh, they're in the middle of Kansas, which is ironic because I used to sit there all the time and go, "What are the, you know? If you live in LA and you get people coming down to USC, or you're at NYU in New York as it goes, or even in London, I'm sure they have a steady supply of uh, folks from the business, as you and I have discussed, talking about how to learn the music business." But I always yeah, used yeah. to say, "What if you live in Kansas 
and nobody's coming to see you. And so anyway, um, that course is now made available. So I've already heard from three of the students um, right. in the class out of 40. Does that tell you which ones are looking to move to the front of the class, Miles? <laughs> All right. So anyway, let me ask you, here's his question, and I'll ask it for you. Uh, what was the moment that you decided that you were going to be able to, to be a musician for a career? Um, if you could use one word to describe the feeling you felt in that moment, what would it be? Was there a moment when you started to sit there and go, shit, this might actually work out to be better than a hobby? Um, I, I was very young. I, I had two jobs before I actually started earning a living out of uh, playing my instrument and writing songs. One, I was a litter picker at an exhibition centre in, in Birmingham. The other one was working at a dole office, uh, giving people their unemployment benefit. And neither of those were permanent jobs. Uh, they were just casual work that I'd do for a year each. And when I finished those, both of those years, uh, I quite happily signed on the dole. You know, you could get unemployment benefit here in the UK. I was going to do some <laughs> translation for the Americans, the colonials here. Litter picker, yeah. garbage man, and okay. dole office, unemployment. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And so, you know, I wasn't going to starve because um, the government would su uh, support me for it for a year or so. And I think uh, the feeling with it, when I committed to, you know what, I'm not going to look for another job. I'm going to live on this, you know, very small amount of money and I'm going to commit to getting as many gigs as I can and trying to figure out how to raise money and to make an independent uh, seven inch single. Uh, the, the feeling, I would describe it as uh, pure arrogance. You know, <laughs> it, it was just, I'm going to do this and no fuck is going to stop me. Uh, it it's funny, I recall sitting on uh, the balcony with you at the uh, Franklin Hotel yes. in Hollywood, which you uh, made sound much better than it really is, folks, if you ever happen to have been by that fucking dump. And I had been there many times over the years, uh, talking about something about work and this and that and how we had to do work and we had to promote the record and so forth when you were dutifully listening to me. And then at some point you turned around and said, Steve, if I fucking wanted to work, I'd have gotten a real job. It's your job to do the work. <laughs> and I remember scratching my head and thinking, well, I hadn't, I hadn't really looked at it that way previously. That um, you and I worked together all through those years and also the, the years that I, I uh, carried on working with the major label with another band I had in an interim point in the Wonder Stuff's career. Um, again, Polydor Universal. We'll talk um, about them a little but, bit later. Go ahead. Yeah, and I maintain that, that, you know, like my job is to supply you with the product or not that I would ever have used that, that phrase back then. It, but it's, it's people at the label and it's my managers and it's the gig promoters. It's your fucking job to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, right there in that nutshell, folks, for all the artists out here watching, this is one of my things that drove me crazy over there when people ask me what are the lessons I learned. So many artists, Miles, would sit there and tell me, I did my bit, Steve. Now I'm done. And when, in fact, you know, you come to find later, I think you might reluctantly agree, that making the music winds up being, in most cases, the fun part, the part that you can actually control. But, you know, nobody wants to talk to the manager about the record. They're not interested in hearing what your marketing manager thinks about the record. They want to talk to the artist. So in so many ways, it's really just the start uh, of yeah. the work side of it, which can be painful uh, for some folks. Fair comment? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Once um, once I got to the end of the '90s and I started working with an independent label uh, based in uh, New Jersey, and uh, it was then that I really learned that. Uh, and of course, this would be the, big, the, the early years of the internet. Uh, I think we might have been. Uh, I was just past CompuServe and maybe using <laughs> early days of MySpace or something then. But I actually enjoyed that. I, it, it was, it's funny, it took me to get away from the world of, of the major labels and, and back into independent, smaller labels that I really enjoyed uh, just doing this, you know, the, the, the most basic of things like putting a CD in a jiffy bag and posting it out just and thinking to myself, well, some kid found this record, you know, it wasn't on the front cover of the big magazines, but somebody had found my record and ordered it on mail order. And I love getting those numbers from the guys that ran the label, great guy called Indian. And he, he said to me, you know, like, you, you did like 50 orders this week, you know, 50 albums, where I was previously, five years before, I was selling 250,000 albums. And suddenly I was taking more pleasure in the fact that I, I had a, a sort of hands-on experience of those 50 albums going out of my friend's garage and, and his indie label. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and now I thoroughly enjoy doing and handling the social media for, for the wonder stuff um, and for the other stuff that I do music, musically with other people. Um, I, I'm... I really enjoy it. It's kind of a shame that, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I started doing all this, the idea of me getting on the promotion side, I, I would recoil at. I hated it. Well, let me tell you how I feel about the fucking indie world. You'll watch this later, Miles, but I'll show it to the customers out there today. I used to have a whole staff of people that helped me do my web show here, right? The guy who did the switching and somebody who helped with the cameras and, and putting together all the graphics in the morning. And, uh, and today I'm doing it on my own, so I'll show everybody. It's me, this fucking grisly old fuck trying to make all this shit happening. So I apologize for the folks that are going to watch later and see all my, my, all my contacts of my Skype in your window over there. And as I was sitting there trying to make it go away, I realized that I'm now putting more menu stuff in, in there. And so uh, uh, I'm not as big a fan of the DIY as you are, my friend. <laughs> Maybe that's just the little fucking princess in me talking. Um, at any rate, um, let's change subjects here for a second. Um, there's a lesson in my course, one of the things I've learned over the years, and it's called picking your partners, right? And it, I suppose it doesn't much matter whether you're uh, an artist or a businessman. That notion of picking your partners is so important because it's much easier to, to find a partner than it is to get rid of a bad partner. Fair comment? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, so this notion of picking a partners is particularly relevant, I think, when you talk about, you know, putting together a band. Um, prior to the Wonder Staff, you'd been in a number of bands, uh, which I was frankly shocked and horrified to see some of the pictures of those bands. Well, I never, <laughs> I never ever imagined you in Guyliner and, and the kind of modified flock of seagulls haircut. Uh, <laughs> We've all got to start somewhere, Eddie. <laughs> yes, we, yes, we do. And I'm happy to see I got on the ride <laughs> after you'd sorted through some of that stuff there. Um, but the point I want, the question I wanted to ask is that in those other bands, for different reasons, you know, bands don't work. And then you found a group of people that did work about. Um, uh, talk about what it is about those original three guys that made a connection and that, that accomplished for you with that band what you hadn't accomplished previously. Well, I think in truth, it was the only three guys that I could find that would work with me. Uh, but it, I, I, seriously, I think 
it became obvious that these were the three people to stick with and ride out some of the more difficult moments because it was obvious that they committed. They, they committed really, really, you know, really early. Two of those guys are now sadly dead. Uh, and the other guy, we just don't have a relationship left. You know, 30 years together was yeah. enough. Um, but um, two of the guys had good jobs. Uh, good jobs and fiancés and, you know, didn't live at home with their parents. They'd got rent to make. But after about six months of us forming the band, getting our first indie single out there and, and me being able to hustle up gigs through other other bands that I knew, um, they gave up those jobs. That They gave up decent paid jobs to, uh, to come on this ride, you know, to join this ride together. And... Um, I thought that was a big deal. I was on the dole, you know. If, if I ended up getting thirty pound a week, you know, that, that I was getting a raise. They were they were taking a serious hit, and yeah. I, I think um, I think knowing like that displayed their commitment. Really. Interesting to hear you say that because it's something I talk about a lot with folks. You know, it's easy to dream about being successful in the music, about being a pop star, and I think for most people, they don't understand the reality of what that takes. And in many cases, you were you were kind of lucky in the sense that you started to have success at 20, 21, 20, I think you were 22 when I first met you and you'd had some success yeah. up to then. Lots of artists wait a lot longer than that for it to happen. So it tests your commitment uh, in ways that you can't possibly imagine until you've actually been there. Uh, I wanna talk a little bit about, you know, um, in every band there, in my experience, and I've worked with a number of bands over the years, you were, Unfortunately for you, probably, you were the second artist that I managed, you know, and I was still learning. But in every band, there are different personality types, right? And if I were writing a book, I might be able to put them into buckets a little bit, right? Um, right. In, in your band, there, in every band, there is a quiet one, right, that seems yeah. a little shy and submissive is not the right word, but will it, you know, kind of goes along with you for the ride, even sometimes as you're driving off a cliff. And that was Malcolm Treese. Um, typically in the band, there's a Devil May Care, you know, the guy that's just, you know, hey, whatever. That was, for me, that was Jilksy. Um, mm -hmm. In most of the bands I managed, there wasn't a scary guy like uh, the late, great Bob Jones. Uh, but in almost every band I've managed, um, there's been a, uh, shall I say, uh, unpredictable one, <laughs> an emotionally charged one, an idealist to a fault. Um, you were that guy in the wonder stuff. Talk about how those personalities worked in the beginning and perhaps later on, the very same things that worked in the beginning start to be the things that, that fray in the end. Yeah, I mean, definitely. When you first, when we first started out, the, the the character differences weren't that obvious to each other. We sort of grew into those roles, <clears throat> and probably for the first twelve months of being out there gigging regularly and getting a couple of records out, and by records I mean seven inches, we 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 became exactly those characters that that you just described. Three or four years into it, the quiet guy you know, isn't quite so comfortable being told where his life is heading, you know. You're also doing things like you're going to have, you know, relationships, partners, um, that are almost sidelines to the band. And um, 
you, you you sort of have to split yourself. It, it's it's easy in that first twelve months to a year being totally committed to the band, but then you know then you're making some money out of the band. You're picking out somewhere nice to live with your partner, and they're going to want to say things. And it's slightly embarrassing for the quiet guy to go, well, might not be able to do that because Milo wants to do this, and so there becomes a, a bit of resentment sets in. Um, are we, are we successfully live now? Is Was that a high five for that? No, no, that was a high five because she got rid of my list here. And can I just say uh, for the folks, not to interrupt you because you're rolling here, uh, somebody hacked my uh, Skype account this weekend, so all these people are probably thinking, what a fucking pervert this guy is. He's got, uh, no, it wasn't me, folks, and I didn't dare look to see what the licks were of what somebody thought were my favorite kind of women. I only hope that they were actually women and not uh, mules, but go ahead, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, that, those character traits that, that you so eloquently described start to work against each other. Yeah. Eventually, the, like I said, the quiet guy doesn't want to be the quiet guy all the time. He, he wants to say in what's happening to his fucking life, and yeah. he doesn't want to leave it to the unpredictable gobshite at the front of the fucking room. Uh, yeah, and and then the, the gobshite that used to feel so sort of safe and secure that the quiet guy ha had his back or the scary guy scared off people suddenly that support system starts to feel like it's dropping away and uh, and you become you, you become quite resentful of each other it's funny in, in the book that i'm writing now like the the years 90 to 94 we don't like each other that it's it's painfully obvious with what i'm reading in my diaries we certainly don't socialize anymore we, you know, there's never so much as, you know, finish a day's rehearsal. Hey, should we go for a pint together? No, you've all got a separate group of friends and that's who you go and spend your time with. How a band like, for, you two are probably the greatest example of, it's the four original guys that have kept it together. What are they on now? 35, nearly 40 years? Maybe 40 years. Like how the hell, even Stones, you know, Bill Wyman had to say, you know, I've had enough eventually. How they have done that, and there are points in the, in something like the U2 career where you could go, well, with that kind of money rolling in, you wouldn't leave, well, you can make anything work, but it's it's gone way beyond money now for, for, for reasons. I just don't understand how they've kept that together. How have they not killed each other? I, I have a theory about that. You know, first that they grew up together, not, not unlike you guys a little bit, but, you know, um, I'm absolutely certain, though, Right, and although I have, don't, I'm not there behind the scenes. Other than that, that at some point it becomes a business, and at some point maybe they become like the old married couple that starts. You know, there are certain things that bother them, and they just steer clear of them. Because I can't imagine that, you know, Dave, the Edge, and you know, the drummer Larry, and or who's who, Adam Clayton, and the, that at some point every time Bono waves that flag or gets up on his fucking stump, you know, hugging the trees, that they're all, they're not just going, just sing the fucking song for Christ's sake, you know. Um, but but they keep showing up in the in in the you know the bands you know the Eagles who would get together you know when after they said you know we're going to get together when hell freezes over and then they did the hell freeze over tour and did it 15 times Pretty. and I've sat with you know the dearly departed Glenn Fry and listened to him editorialize on his partners and it wasn't good uh, but they managed to keep going and I think those are some of the things that are easier for some artists and others given the cast of characters but you know the eagles would show up and, and and ironically or i suppose not so ironically what maybe kept them together is when 
they didn't have to interact. They just played their music. In many ways, it reminded them of why they were there, and it made yeah. the, the other 23 hours of the day uh, more bearable, and the fact that they all had their own planes, buses, and crews, all that stuff. That would of course help, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, isn't there a great um, Charlie line, drummer from, uh, drummer from the Rolling Stones, where at, at the point that the Rolling Stones have been going 40 years, he drops a great comment, like, you know, I've been in the Rolling Stones for 40 years, but maybe 15 years of that was behind the kit. The rest of it was just hanging around. Yeah. You know, and it's hanging around time with each other that, that becomes really testing. Yes, it is. All right, let's talk about something, you know, getting up on the business for a minute here. You know, um, you and I were talking the other day about, you know, one of your friends was at Clint or somebody in the Poppies was teaching a class to young musicians about writing music, right? And it's Richard. Okay, and you'd made the the comment that you know everybody wants to study the music business today. Back when we started, we just got in a room and made music. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I'm slightly suspect about these uh, these music courses. You know, I know people. My partner Erica, the, the violinist in the Wonder Stuff, you know, she did you know 50 grand's worth of education at a conservatoire to learn to play the violin to, to sort of orchestra standard and stuff. <clears throat> uh, and of course. You know, you're not going to figure out how to do that sitting on the end of your bed with a fucking violin. You you, you need, you know, tuition. But for, for the area of music that I've worked in and the area of music that I love and has inspired me, which is essentially rock and roll, um, I don't know that you can teach anybody that. Uh, I would I would imagine the same. That's the same for like urban music or hip hop. It, it's about it's about character. Yeah, I think you know, and I don't think you can teach somebody character and i don't know whether i'm right you know i'm allowed to slag off the younger generation well, i agree with you for the record I, i've i've earned this but i i think this is a really dreary fucking era of pop rock and roll it, even you know I've, there's been periods in my life where i've really enjoyed hip-hop i find it predictable and fucking dreary the whole shebang now and is there a correlation between these schools that have come up that are not conservatoires, that are, you know, like the music technology courses, <clears throat> um, that have basically kicked the fucking life and character out, out of this these areas of music that I love so much. You go, yeah, I, I don't I, know. I think, you know, there's something to be said for that, Milo, because I think on something that, you know, I'm not a musician, but for something that's in essentially an emotional exercise and, and so many times I've talked to artists it's almost like this is a purge <laughs> for them in, in many ways and I think mm -hmm. in today's world where everybody can google everything and and there I mean I've started learning how to fly you got a million flying lessons and whatever your interest is there's a million things they're going to teach you how to do it and I think what happens is a lot of folks out there think that there's a recipe if I just do one two and three I can be like this person or Miles Hunter, or I can be a manager like Steve Rennie or Irving Azoff or whatever it might be. When, ironically, most of the folks that they're listening to on the radio, reading about that are working with bands, running labels and the like, are people that learned it by doing. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. And, and so, well, it's fun to go get up to speed for all the folks out there that, are, that might be watching you know, this or you know, taking lessons in my course, wanting their money back, right? Um, you know, I always tell people, you know, Good to get up to speed on the lay of the land to know what you're getting into, but yeah. take my word, stop dreaming, start doing. 
and you'll figure it out a lot faster. Instead of spending 50 grand at a college, maybe you're better off spending that 50 grand moving to LA and begging for your first gig in the music business, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly don't think there's any harm in finding out about all the various aspects of the music business, you know, um, just because you can knock out a great tune that might be able to put a tear in your girlfriend's eye when you got the guitar on your lap doesn't mean that you're going to be a fucking monstrously huge rock star. You do have to be aware, you know, all the different aspects. So it's in, it's probably, uh, you know, a good idea to learn what producers do, you know, producers do and shooting. I haven't got a fucking clue when I was trying to explain that to my non-music interested friends. Like, you know, I like this producer. I didn't really know how to put that into words. I certainly did. I had no idea what these guys were doing. You're Tony Visconti's, you know, sprinkling magic dust all over these pieces. Great artist music. And and also something that I think in these courses, the music uh, music business courses particularly, I had, by the time I met you, I had no understanding whatsoever what the fuck I was doing when I came on a, out on a promotional tour of America with you. And we went to things like the Gavin Report, um, you know, help me out with some of the the, the trade. The Gavin, all the grip and grins. You know, the the, the label meetings, going to the conventions. All, yeah. it's, it, it's it's the shilling part of the business. You know that. Yeah, but I had no idea what it was in England. I understood when when somebody from the NME or any of the other music papers, when you met them in a pub or went to their office, they were going to interview you, and a guy was going to take pictures of you, and that was going to appear in next week's publication. With those things that we did in the states. I had no fucking, literally no fucking idea what we were doing in those buildings. You'd say, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, shake that hand, shake that hand. And then I would stand there thinking, well, is anybody going to interview us? Is anybody, what the fuck are we doing? But it was just gripping and grinning. I could have done with a crash course, you know, the week before or the month before, Milo, this is what we do in America. I don't think we ever had that conversation. Well, you know, I think we, I, I recall that from time to time I would try to fill you in. I think that I recall having a conversation with you once, which is that in America here, they want to know you're a team player first. You know what I mean? Right. Where in England, yeah. it's a slightly different attitude where people will go and take their keys and scratch that Mercedes Benz, where in America they'll go, oh, nice car, right? Yeah. Um, yeah I want to go back to something you said here because it's a question that comes up all the time, right? Particularly with rock bands, right? Where they have a live sound and their instinct is to go and try to get that live sound in a record. And a great record producer, a friend of mine by the name of Brendan O'Brien, who's produced Pearl Jam and Rage Against Machine and Stone Temple Pilots and Springsteen and ACDC and did three records with Incubus as well, you know, said something to me that really stuck. He goes, you know, Randy, when bands are trying to capture their live sound, they're missing the whole point. A, a live show, particularly with a band like you, where every night it was different for any number of reasons, you know, um, they, that is in the moment. That's, that, you're in the moment, so the flaws in the execution of the songs will be forgiven if the energy is there, whereas records were meant to be perfect. You mentioned in your book uh, a gentleman that I remember meeting, Pat Collier, who was the first, like, proper producer that you'd work with and up until that point you guys had spent a lot of money and a lot of energy and kept whiffing in the studio until you met pat and at first it was kind of a grindingly slow process where you talk about that transition from trying to recapture your live sound to actually making great records well yeah exactly that's exactly the sort of the, the, the view we had of it you'd go in the studio you'd set up your stuff the drummer would go one two three four and he sticks off you go can somebody just record this, please? It's going to sound great. And, of course, it doesn't. Uh, there's a science to it, and Pat Collier knew it. You know, Pat got a great uh, track record. 
that in so much as what we previously we'd gone into recording studios uh, on our own dime um, and tried to record four actual finished tracks in a day. Uh, but then when we go to meet, to, to meet somebody that knows the science of this, Pat Collier in, that, in this case, you're lucky if you get like the drums, just the drums recorded to two songs in a day. And it's nothing to do with the drummer's performance. First of all, you would, you would record it as live and then with, with a click track metronome behind you and then Pat would have you replace each instrument um, and then do all sorts of little tricks like uh, overdubbing, so, uh, overdubbing um, two versions of your guitar, so stereo spread and, and learning all things. But it was incredibly frustrating to go from, to, to walk into a recording studio, do what you consider the day's work, which for me would just be sitting on a couch playing video games while the drummer is doing, you know, two songs worth of drum tracks. It's ridiculously frustrating. Thankfully, by then, we, we were on Polydor Records, so they were paying for it, you know. I, said, I don't think I'd have stuck around. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was something to get used to. Um, that there's a skill and there's a science to this, even to make a record that sounds like you imagine the band to sound live. The, the last thing you want to do is try and do it live. It's yeah. bizarre as that sounds, you know. There's, no, there's yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's, a, it's I think, something that bands go through. And, and then ultimately, as you guys went on, you know, you, you actually started, you know, taking that thing into its fullest extent and bringing in different players and so forth and so on. Can I just take a moment here for a second? I just want to introduce sure. you to, again, to Kira O'Neill, who's lonely as fuck over there in the chat room because, you know, somehow... The old boy here couldn't figure out how to get this thing to work live on Facebook today. You know, I, like I said, this will be the last live show I ever do, Miles. So, so back again. Sorry, I just I felt like she's like the lonely schmuck over in the corner. You know, I'm still paying you, Kira. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I'm fielding questions in the event. I've given them the directions and they're posting them. That's good. All right, good. Now, let me see if I can go back to uh, there. We go. There's my oh, there's Miles and I again. Okay, um, good stuff there. Um, while we're on the subject of these um, songs, we had some questions. I might as well make some friends with the people that, that did their homework in advance. Um, I got a question here from a lady by the name of Sophie Campbell. I'll read it for you. Miles, what's the best song you've written? I think it's Circle Square. This, still's, this song is still my favorite of all time. Well, that, that's up there as a favorite of mine. Uh, thank you very much uh, for Sophie. For saying it's uh, saying Sophie for saying that you like it. Yeah, look, I, I love that song because it came so easily. It was just an afternoon or an evening with an acoustic guitar in my lap, and it just all happened. Them are the best songs. Them, it, uh, you know, there are songs that I've laboured over, uh, and then you go to other people, can you help me with this? And then you, I've not bothered writing the lyrics, and six months later, I'm so sick of the instrumental. And you know, the ones you labour over are not the ones that stay with you. So Circle Square is a favourite of mine, and it's a song that the band always still play live when we do um, do shows. It's also a song that me and Erica will always do live when we do our acoustic shows as well. For me, um, I, I tend to say that my my favourite song that I've ever written is the next one. The next one. Love that. Yeah. Love that. It's interesting the comment you made there. Again, not being a musician, but having, you know, 
work with bands that were in the studio. And, and for me, I never spent a lot of time in the studio, as you know. I always felt, I was always the guy that was talking when the guy would hit the fucking mute button. And everybody goes, Steve, <laughs> what the fuck? Right? So I, I learned to have my coffee and tea and get the, the, the fuck out of Dodge here, you know? Um, but, you know, the good comments for folks out there because so often the last song particularly true with my old friends in Incubus, it seemed like almost every time the single was the last song they wrote, right? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. they would grind away and grind away, and then bang, the last one out the window was good, which made me always want to go, how about we just do 20 last songs? And then they go, Steve, <laughs> isn't it time for you to go now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've said that. I'm glad to know it's not just just my life because it's something about having the pressure off. I guess you know you've worked for in most cases you know you've worked for months on a record, and the producer is mixing the last track, and you might be idling around with a guitar or the bass player's mucking around with his bass, just while the very last few things are happening, and then bosh, this song will come out of nowhere. And I, th I think in that case, it's just to do with the relief. Thank fuck this thing's in the bag. And just being in that area where you're not anxious yeah, uh, and a song finds its way in. I'm glad to hear that that used to happen to another, me well. Another question about uh, songs. Let me flip it up on the screen there. Um, this is from Fiona Hicks, uh, who wants to know, what song do you wish you had written? Which song do you wish you hadn't written? <laughs> nice one there, Fiona. You are treading into some dangerous ground. Take it away, Mr. Hunt. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, I, th I think the song, um, I, I don't know that I've ever said I wished I'd have written it. Um, actually, I'm reminded of, I have said that before. Uh, I would say. <laughs> I have heard you the, say that. Yeah, The Whole of the Moon by the Waterboys is, is one of my <coughs> favorite ever songs that I've never, ever tired from. But a quick little uh, amusing anecdote here. Years ago, uh, the Wonder Stuff took a break and I became, for my sins, a VJ for uh, 120 minutes on MTV Europe. And I, uh, I had to, I, they'd lined up my first interview that I, that I was ever going to have to do was with the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. Oh, God. And I wasn't looking forward to this because, you know, they were known as not being an easy interview. Uh, but particularly, uh, they'd had already had a go at me, or Liam had in, in the uh, NME. Sweet calling guy. me a cunt or something, you know. And so I'd got to go and face off this kid. And uh, But I, I, so I went to see them, and I went on my own, and it was the town and country, or the forum, as it's now called, in Kentish Town. And, and I'm sitting on the balcony uh, on my own, and they're playing a song that I'd never heard before. And it turns out it was a song from their first record called Slide Away. And as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, good God, this is brilliant. And as I'm thinking that, I hadn't seen who was sitting next to me. And this guy budges up to me, got a big white fur coat on and he got long hair. And he just said, what limb would you have given to have written that song? And I look back at him. And it was Ian Asprey from the cult. <laughs> <laughs> and so there the two of us were listening to this Oasis song slide away and thinking, Christ, I wish I'd have written this one. But uh, that's not stayed with me. That's not a song I've gone back to time and time again. So the Waterboys, Hold of the Moon, I would like to, I'd be very proud of myself if I'd have managed to written them. And the song I wished I hadn't written is a song called Astley in the Noose 
I remember that song. Yeah, and it's just a horrible jibe, a, a very soft target of a pop star that was famous at the time in the UK. Well, uh, Rick Astley, actually, he was probably yes. famous in the US as well, wasn't he? So it's just a, a cheeky jibe, a bloke that's a soft target and didn't deserve to be ridiculed. Yeah. And I hate it uh, on so many levels, you know. Yeah. And, and, and as a, a member of your team, I, I would say that to, to make it, make you know, like Mike, it was a waste of vinyl. Okay, that fucking sucks. We probably could have used that for something, you know, saving my meatloaf from last night or something. I don't fucking know. But I would um, say, say on, on, that, uh, on that point, the, there's a bit of advice. Unless you want a career of, you know, writing comedic songs, don't write songs that are jokes because yeah. jokes work when they're told once when you find yourself in a position where people still 30 fucking years later say to me Milo, Milo, play Astley in the news I'm like, really? That's still funny to you? I have to tell everybody a funny story if you've ever been to Wonder Stuff show for the folks that haven't been, you know you would, you would be treading into uh, dangerous territory where you just shout out from the audience uh, suggestions for Miles Play, I have this indelible fucking image in my head and forget where it was is it's somewhere in LA I think we were playing that fucking horrible venue where you made some comment about fuck I can't believe everybody's wearing their fucking sunglasses at night you oh, fucking God, yes. blah 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 but some kid yells out Kiara you love it some kid yells out the song and Miles puts his hands on his hip and goes hold it you're the audience I choose the songs you fucking listen and I thought Woo! <laughs> Hello, play what you like there, sir. <laughs> it's so difficult to hear that in the cold light of day. It was always, I gotta say this, as a guy sitting at the back of the room who preferred a, uh, shall we say, more traditional approach, you know, like Bruce Springsteen, mm -hmm. all right, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I watched it and it was always amusing because for all you artists out there that, that want to be a front person, either a band or as a singer, there's something to be said, and God knows I said it to some of my clients over the years, that the singer is the one with the microphone. So you, in a way, you have to tell the audience what to do. Put your hands together, you know, do this thing. And, then, and conversely, now, the reason I always came up as a manager is when artists would get like inside themselves and you know, didn't want to talk or wanted to be Tom York and looking at his shoes, you know, it told the audience it, that you were disinterested and those gigs wind up being flat. And every time the band would complain to me, I'd go, well, you fucking guys look like you were on Xanax up there, for Christ's sake. I said, I don't need you to be Bon Jovi, but for Christ's sake, you know, fuck, they're counting on you to tell them what the fuck to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's true. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't suit every band. I mean, somebody like Radiohead is a classic example. I mean, I'm not a fan, but his miserable face kind of suits their miserable music. <laughs> But uh, the, the one I remember uh, of you when, when you were at, um, was it Epic Records you were at? Yes. Yeah. Epic Records uh, in America, but yeah. Yeah, and, and Oasis came over to play. And I remember you saying to me at the time, like, does this fucking guy, is this all he does? Just fucking stand there? And then <laughs> when, when the lead guitarist takes a solo, the fucking guy has the audacity to sit on the drum riser. And I'm like, yes, that's what he does. But don't you see, to me, that is, of course, the absolute antithesis of what Dave Lee Roth does. But to me, it works just as well that he has the fucking arrogance to 
not at all get involved in the moment. I thought it was brilliant. I, I thought he was a fucking lazy twat. And you know what? <laughs> there was a reason why, and I will say this proudly with no offense to the Cocteau twins. People that go and talk about it go, hey, Cocteau twins are great. I'd love to have dinner with them. But I want to go to Rocks. I want to see Van fucking Halen, David Lee Roth going, <laughs> look at all the people tonight, right? Because that, to me, was a rock show. And by the way, Miles, I learned that because all of my heroes, as you know, I'm a big limey jock sniffer. I love the limeys and the music. I grew up on the Rolling Stones, big front man, Robert Plant, Roger Daltrey. Those guys made you feel like you were lucky to be in the room, and they were clearly trying, and everybody in the audience wanted to be them. So strangely, you know, that was my reference point. And later in the English world, that, that shoegazing thing became uh, in vogue. And I think that's what attracted me to you, dude, even on that first night I saw you, which we'll talk about. Um, that uh, I thought, this motherfucker, a little dangerous, but there's no question who's driving up here tonight, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, but, you know, there's in-betweens. You're absolutely right in everything you just said, but you see, also, you know, the, the British punk rock scene of the late 70s, John John Lydon, or Johnny Rotten, as he was, he wasn't, you know, getting everyone hand-clapping above his head, but he, he, he still commanded something, you know, there was, in his attitude, same with Susie Sue, same with Joe Strummer, you know, that they, they commanded your respect, and so mm. I very much agree with you, you know, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to feel, you know, less than the rock god on stage, that was part of the fucking game, you know, I, so... Uh, I, thought, I don't get the shoegaze. I don't get the Tom Yorks. The, I thought the, the, it was an interesting, back to your book again, pardon the shameless plugs book, but it really is a, is a great book, that you talked about doing your rock star poses in front of a mirror. And by the way, That's I used to sit there and think, these guys didn't just dream this shit up. Some guy's sitting there in his fucking mirror going, let me get my shit. <laughs> you know? And, no, the, you know, no, and, and then you, you figure it out, I like that, that move works, you know, and you kind of went with it, right? Yeah, yeah, but the, I, I should add, let's clear this up, not when I was 22 years of age. This was like when I was 15 or 16, I'd have a gig in my bedroom in front of the mirror pretending to be Joe Strummer or something. But yeah, you know, you, you, you're learning your craft at that point. You're learning your craft, and I'm going to say that that little 15-year-old Miles Hunt was honest. The one at 22 was trying to act like he didn't give a shit, but he fucking did, folks, okay? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving Moving right along here. You having fun so far, Miles? Sure, yeah, yeah. I might need a bathroom break sooner or later. <laughs> That's what happens when you get to be 50, okay? I'll, leave, <laughs> I'll give you something to think about, though. My son and my wife and I go out to see Bruce Springsteen. The guy's 67 years old, right? For all you young people, uh, close your ears, but the rally will kick in. I'm sitting there as a 61-year-old guy. They used to play three-and-a-half-hour sets. Everybody knew that. But they would do about a buck 20, buck 25 out of the box, and then they take a 15, 20. 20 minute break and then they go and play for two hours right so at about the hour and a half mark i got a piss like a racehorse right and i'm sitting there looking for the break and at an hour and 45 going they're going deep by two hours i'm thinking fuck they're not taking a break right they wound <laughs> up playing three hours and 45 minutes and by the end of it max weinberg's on the drums and i'm thinking he's ready to wave the white flag and i'm thinking how the fuck did these guys go four and four hours nothing okay yeah. Anyway, wow. enough on that, folks. <laughs> that is actually, there's, uh, there's a thing, uh, no one's ever sneezed on stage. This, this is things that Erica, my partner, is brilliant at noticing these things. There are certain things that just don't happen on stage, unless you're ill. I've, I've seen guys have to run off to go and sit on the bowl because they've eaten something wrong the night before. <laughs> but uh, you, don't, you can go on stage 
vaguely needing a piss, but the feeling goes away once rock is upon you. No one yawns on stage, no one sneezes on stage. It's a really strange thing. The stage is a whole other world. I will say there's something to that. I thought it was going to happen today because I swear to God, I must have done 15, you know, test runs over the weekend, yeah. making sure everything's working properly. As soon as the fate God of rock gods go, they go, watch me fuck this old guy up right here. And all of a sudden, for the first time out of town, our stream didn't work today. So for all the folks who are going to watch this later, they're going, I hate that old fucker. You know, pardon me. It's rock. You know what I mean? And I don't have a crew to take care of it for me. Uh, speaking of a, a great team, right? Um, yeah. Behind almost every successful artist I've found over the years, and I've been doing this way too long now, um, is a great manager, right? Whether you mentioned U2, we mentioned the Rolling Stones, we mentioned all these great bands, and typically there has been a, a, a manager behind them, in many cases a long-time running manager. So that idea about putting together a professional team, if you're going to go from you know, the aspiring kid practicing in front of the mirror to getting together your mates, making records and so forth, typically having a manager along the way to help deal with all that stuff that you were not very comfortable with, right, is important. Um, you know, I've said a million times, you know, when people ask me, how do you find a manager? I say, more often than not, the, the great managers and the professional managers will find you. And it sounds like that was the case with you. I want you to talk about how you first hooked up with a manager, and then we'll spend a minute on why you chose me to be one of your managers. <laughs> um, well, uh, originally, I, I was pretty, you know, active in trying to uh, source gigs in our local area. So all around the Birmingham and Black Country area in the Midlands. Uh, and I'd sit on my mom and dad's telephone all afternoon after I'd sent out the cassettes in the jiffy bags to all these different uh, venues trying to get, get gigs. Um, and you're right. What, what happened with us was um, we were making a little bit of a noise in just in our local area. And uh, quite a big manager, certainly to us, it felt like he was the king of the rock and roll business. He, he'd managed the beat or the English beat, as, as you know, mm -hmm. in the States, and then gone on to manage Fine Young Cannibals. There's a guy, guy called John Mostyn who then um, had a hand in Ocean Coliseum's career. And he's still very active, great guy. Um, and he heard about us um, and then mentioned it because uh, he was a Birmingham-based manager. He, he mentioned it to some other people that he, he was working with, one of which was a guy called Les Johnson. And Les was one of those local promoters that I'd been sending cassettes out to looking for gigs. So you're right. So, you know, it's what Les Johnson already knew who the band were, knew my name, had spoken with me on the phone when I'm just looking for gigs. And then John Mostyn hears of the one stuff from somewhere else because we appear in a lot of these venues. And it all comes together. So, yes, you, your assumption that good managers will often find the bands. But that's going to say, you know, the advice of the band is you just got to keep playing. You just got to keep knocking on the door uh, and, being, and being visible, you know. And what's interesting about it, and again, reading the book was, it was fun for me because I've said to artists all the time, while you're looking for that great manager, somebody's got to be the manager in the band. So ironically, the guy that had the least taste for it uh, you was the guy who was sending out the tapes that was going over the artwork that was pitching out everybody shaking everybody's hands and maybe it's because you knew that sooner or later you're going to find some knucklehead like Dave or Les and me to come and handle it for you and then you can say you handle the work because I fucking hate it right but that's <laughs> yeah. too common you were the one handling that in the beginning right I was, yeah, but you see, I, I never really let go because I was always in, inquisitive and, and even when you you came in at the uh, in 1989 it, 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 and then one of the original managers, Dave, went away. Um, 
I used to love the time difference of you being in Los Angeles and me being in London because that meant I could get in from the pub and phone you and just talk about the band. And Steve, can we get this down? Remember, I used to do that to you all the time. Oh, fuck. Can I tell you something? I loved it too, Miles. The, the secret that people ask me why I liked English bands, I said two reasons. One, I don't have to live with them, and B, <laughs> Um, the time difference means that they're not going to wake me up in the middle of the night and I'm not going to wake them up early in the morning, right? <laughs> and, and fortunately, that worked for me my, my, my whole career. Uh, but I will tell you this. I recall back in the day that I had these monumental fucking long-distance phone calls long before Skype. And because Miles and I would have these fucking marathon phone calls. Right, and I quite enjoyed it because it would be six, seven in the morning for me, and Miles had just come back from the pub and feeling no pain, and and they, I wish we could have taped them. Some of them would have <laughs> been priceless, I'm sure, and a few of them would have put us right out of business. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, there you have so folks some advice on management. Another thing I wanted to talk about is um, touring, right? For, for most bands playing live gigs, and certainly true, I think, with rock bands, um, playing the gigs is, is the payoff pitch for all the work. You know, the hour, hour and a half you get in front of the audience. And, uh, and it's where you get to see your customers up close and personal. And you guys were a tremendous live band. Um, I want you to talk about, for the folks out there that are just thinking about this, you know, how you guys became that great, great live band, including you, the guy who didn't like to work, penchant for rehearsing and practicing and getting it right. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, it was because there was a group of bands, Pop Release itself, Ned's Tommy Dustbin, that we were, we were all in a, a, out of each other's pockets at the time that we all came up. And I remember the poppies particularly used to take the, take the mickey out of me. Uh, because it always seemed to them that the Wonder Stuff were rehearsing, and that's probably true compared definitely to the poppies. I can't remember how heavy the Neds used to like to rehearse. But um, for me, it was about reaching a point where you're confident to stand in front of people and potentially, you know, I, I grew up as a really shy kid, so I never really had stage fright, and I, and I certainly still I don't get nervous about going on stage. And I never really did. And perhaps that was because I always used to ask, can we rehearse far more than we actually need to? Which would come to the point where everyone fucking hates rehearsing. And we still have it today, you know, with the lineup that the Wonder Stuff has now. It's kind of a rule that the final rehearsal before the gigs begin has to be bad. Yeah, we have to be bad in that last rehearsal because that means we're bored of rehearsing. And if we're bored of rehearsing, that means we're ready. Uh, and we kind of like, if, if we're still good in that final rehearsal, it kind of worries us because we're like, shit, we'll be bad on the first gig. But yeah, rehearsing, nobody wants to, you know, be caught with their pants down on stage. Um, and to me, that's what it was all about. Not to the point where there's no chance of anything interesting happening. None of us yeah. want to be in a play, you know. Uh, that you've got to do the same thing every night. You still want the idea of being with your audience, that there's an, an element that, that something could happen um, that can't happen in rehearsal. But, yeah, rehearsing, you can't do enough rehearsing. I'm with you on that, and, you know, whether it's golf or whatever it is, I recently started flying, and my wife kids me because I went out and 
bought a whole big PC here and a 46 inch screen and I sit there on a simulator and, and, and put my headset on, I shouldn't even tell you this because you'll think I'm out of my fucking <laughs> mind, but I flew up to Santa Barbara by myself yesterday. Miles will not fly with me, folks, and most folks would be smart not to at this point. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you this, um, it was a little like you described here. I was more anxious to get on with it than I was nervous, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I'd been exactly through it in my head a million times, and now I wanted to get out there and call them up and go, clear for takeoff, runway 2-1. And I said to myself, okay, let's do this, friend, man. One of these guys going to put a fucking GoPro in there and go, what a fucking psycho I really am. But that was what I said. Come on, let's do this, man. It was yeah, like, yeah. fuck you, let's go. Right. It's exactly the same thing, yeah, and you're using the word there, anxious instead of nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do get anxious before I go on stage. I have this weird habit of 20 minutes before I go on stage, I start uncontrollably yawning. Uh, and it doesn't look good if you've got visitors in the dressing room, like from the record company or, you know, people from the press. Why is the singer sitting there yawning? But it must be because I'm anxious to yeah. get on with. I've quickened my breath and I'm now needing to pull some more in, hence the yawn, yeah. Yeah, you want to get on with it. I know I play in golf tournaments, the same thing. I want to, I want to get out there and see what the world has for me, right? And, and yeah. so th there's that, that, that you kind of lose a little bit of that fear because you're ready. You're going, if I'm getting killed today, let's go. Right? Yeah. I think yeah. I'd have been the same way at D-Day. I'd have been going, we're going to, fuck, I'm scared shitless. Let's go! Right? Well, thankfully, it, neither of us had to face Thankfully, that. yeah. <laughs> Let me talk about another um, part of your success is a live band, and, and which obviously fueled some other opportunities we're going to talk about here in a second, you know, is bands all want to be headliners. But the great headliners, in my experience, and you know I started as a concert promoter, Right did tons of support gigs. And so that when that opportunity to become a headliner presented itself, they were what I like to refer as a fucking wrecking machine. You know, they just yeah. got out there and bang. And I remember Bon Jovi opening for 38 Special, a horrible band. I remember seeing Metallica opening for Ozzy Osbourne and going, fuck me, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. I got out of the hallway when they walked down there, right? Um, you guys did tons of support slots. Did you find that those things helped you hone your craft and get comfortable and also hone your ability to take an indifferent audience and put some of them in your pocket by the end of the night? I think that that is the thing, that the, the final thing you said there. It's about um, playing to an audience that isn't yours. I mean, if you're the support band as well, you're probably in a bigger venue than than you know you're used to playing in as a headliner so that's that's an interesting thing to start getting used to uh, bigger rooms bigger audiences but yeah playing to somebody else's audience playing to a non-partisan audience i i actually miss that um in the last couple of years we got to open for my hero john lyden we got to open for public image limited and without actually saying i think i enjoyed supporting phil uh, <laughs> more than i did our more recent headline shows i think i probably did because it, it put that fight back in me you know like public image limited audience in the uk is a fucking hard audience to to, to get past you know that's old punk rockers in there and uh, the fact that we fought the good fight and went down well with that audience that was a not partisan one stuff audience felt great yeah. um so, so yeah those those support tours we did big country was our first one 
and invaluable, absolutely invaluable, seeing how it all works and being treated in that case with big country really yeah. graciously and really encouragingly by the headline band. But yeah, yeah, it's fine advice uh, for folks out there that are starting. And over the years, I won't mention names. I had so many artists that go, I don't really like that band. I don't like this band. And, and they played rock critic. And I always, it always would end with, you know what? You're right. Let's take a seat on the couch where our reputation can be perfectly intact and where nothing can fucking happen, for Christ's sake, okay? You got the couch, you're going on tour, go pick somebody's audience off. Let's talk about something else here. Um, you still got some time here? Absolutely, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I want to talk about music publishing, right? Um, there was that great story that John Lennon and Paul McCartney thought their songs were for the world, right? They just wrote the songs and they flew like little butterflies out into my garden. Uh, they changed their opinion later, particularly Paul McCartney. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you start writing those songs, one of the lessons you should learn is that those songs can actually have some value, right? Uh, but they don't have value if nobody hears them, right? And nobody records them and nobody promotes them. So um, a publisher can add some value to those songs. And you guys, before you got signed to a record deal, got a publishing deal. Talk about that publishing deal. And then we'll talk a little bit about your drummer's pension for uh, whining and dining his newfound uh, publisher. <laughs> well, we, we were the classic indie band when we started, we, meaning we didn't start a record company. We just pressed up a thousand seven inch singles and sent them off to radio and, and magazines. Um, and then <clears throat> we found it quite um, an expensive thing to do. So when we wanted to follow up the first single, we needed it financing. Well, um, our original manager, um, David Aldridge, had, had already got a relationship with a guy called Pete Lawton. Polygram publishing as it was then it is now universal and he liked the band he came saw the band live and so what it was it was um it was a development deal really it was a very small amount of money he said you know ideally what do you want to do next and how can Polygram slash universal help you do that we're like well we would like to press up a seven a second seven inch uh, indie single this time we'd like color artwork or maybe even do a 12 inch you know and uh, and they gave us the money well lent us the money to go and do that i don't think i fully understood um, what music publishing was at the time and I'm, I'm sort of sad to say as well that my life uh, with most of the public i've been with sony atv polygram universal uh is that about that yeah i think I don't find that they do their advertised job uh, as well as I hoped they could have. Uh, as in placing music that I've written in movies, in TV shows. You know, they just sit there with this huge library uh, and don't seem to do very much, has, has been my experience. There's been a couple of exceptions where we have ended up in a, you know, a, a movie and a, or an advert. But they didn't do as much as I thought they could have for, for the percentage that they take. But they were very, very useful to us in terms of helping us in that early development. I don't know whether a publishing company would step up like that anymore. I mean, I you would know more. I about think that they than me. still do. I think you know, give, not to you know, but to 
not to defend, but just to give some perspective. I think when you, when you and I were working together back then, the licensing opportunities, you know, with video games and commercials and all that stuff that exists today that have become commonplace, weren't really, there weren't as many of them. And I think the mindset for artists then was that they weren't going to go co-op themselves to be on a beer can or sell some fucking yeah, Mercury's yeah. or whatever. Whereas, you know, by the time Queen was getting the Viagra commercials and, you know, Led Zeppelin was being played over Cadillac commercials, those artists were a bit older and got rid of their precious and were quite happy to get a tick check or a Mick Jagger $10 million from Start Me Up for, <laughs> for, for, for Microsoft. A couple things, you know, uh, one of the, you know, you know, when you do get a publisher, folks, and Miles knows this, and, you know, and certainly all my other clients, so I was big on making friends with our bankers, right? And one of my mentors early on told me something. He goes, Rennie, don't piss on your banker's foot. And it always stuck in my head here, you know? There's a great story that you mentioned in this fine book here. Did I mention this book, <laughs> folks? The Wonder Step Diaries, 1986 to 89, about the dearly departed Martin Jilks, who uh, decided to show his, his gratitude to his publisher. Um, I'll let you tell the story, Miles. <laughs> we were in a bar at the Marquee Club in, uh, in the West End in London, and I was talking to a friend that had nothing to do with the band who said, look at your drummer. And our drummer, as you mentioned, dearly departed Mike Jokes, was holding a full pint of beer aloft uh, soon to be or soon not to be, depending on where this pint of beer ended up, um, publisher. And uh, the poor guy, Pete Lawton, his name was, went on to have a very successful music business career, said, Martin, if a drop of that beer touches my head, then our deal is off. <laughs> uh, at which point, this was the one that stops way of doing things, at which point Martin unloaded the entire pint on, on the poor guy, you know. I mean, I was fucking horrified and just thought, he just told you he's not going to sign us to, your, to his publishing company if you pulled a bit. And you went and did it. Um, and, uh, those are the moments. Know. Those are the moments, Miles, over the years. There are pictures somewhere on Facebook where I used to have a nice, healthy head of hair when I met Miles Hunt. Uh, I, I reckon I lost a few <laughs> while we were there. I know that he got an earful from the manager at the time, and all I could—I read that and thought, "Oh God, thank God I wasn't there." I'd have just lost my fucking nut. Uh, speaking of <laughs> losing your nut here, Kira O'Neill has been patiently waiting. She's got a couple of questions. You want to take some questions from the hearty souls that are looking at a blank fucking screen, going, "What the fuck is going on here?" Shall we do that? Yeah. All right, let me show. There's Kira. Kira. How the heck are you, Kira? Let me put your the, the, the killer no Kira O'Neill, Queen of Rock, it says. And I got the lower half off. <laughs> how are you? Good. Yeah. Say hello to Miles on Kira O'Neill. Miles. Hey Kira. Hey, how are you? Good. Yeah. Um, you got a lot of fans in here, by the way. You Tell know, them I apologize. A few of them have posted, you know, why did it take you so long to fire me, Miles? <laughs> Okay, so give me. Is, this is relating to um, what you're talking about earlier. Kind of, what kind of record deal, if any, should you want in order to start producing for major artists That's as a, a music producer, musician? Did you hear that, Miles? No, you quickly sum that up for me, Steve. It was a bit in and out for me. It, it was. So, as a music producer, musician, what kind of record deal, if any, should you want in order to start producing for major artists? 
What kind of record deal should you want was the question. Okay. Um, we, uh, we were very lucky with David Aldridge and latterly yourself, of course, um, dealt very well with our label, uh, which is Polydor, in so much as what you don't want at the beginning of your music career um, signing to a record label is too much money. Um, that might sound a little squiffy, but the day you sign and take the check from a, a record company is the day it all begins. You know, I know a lot of bands that think the whole idea of this is to get a record deal, and that means you've won. Now that's the start of your troubles. Is, is what I think. And, and that check isn't that check isn't a gift. That's a loan. And once you've taken that loan, they want that money back. So keep that amount of money as small as to make whatever it takes to make your your business, your band, uh, your programming studio work. Don't take excessive amounts of money because the more money you take, the more pressure you're going to have from the guys that want it back. And that translates itself as... They don't give a fuck if you don't want to go and do X interview or you don't want to make this video with the girls in the short skirts because you've got fucking in integrity. They'll make you fucking do those things because they need the money back. Am I right, Steve? Well, it, it, I'm smiling here. It'll be a great living because I want to talk some more about Record Company. There, uh, there's a, there's a, a lesson I learned along the way that, that would be part two of Don't Piss on Your Banker's Foot. And it's money... Wants an opinion, okay? Yes. They want a little respect. So every time an artist goes, well, I'm the artist, fuck them. I'm going, fuck them. They're the ones giving us the money. And as fast as it came, it can go away. And, I, and I'll say here without getting into the great details, when I look back on my 16 years with my friends in Incubus, when we finally got the big payday, they didn't have a huge one up front, but when we finally got the big payday, if one day, if they still have VH1 behind the music and they ask me where it changed, I'll say it changed the day we got the big check. And because, and I said it to the guys at the time, and I'll say it to all the folks out there today, because your point is spot on here, you know, is that, you know, um, it didn't mean we were any smarter than the day we were before, right? But if I'm being really honest, everybody's attention started to wander very quickly after that. And with that attention wandering goes the inspiration that creates great music in, in many cases. So, you know, it, your point is that I wrote it down here. That's going to be a new one. I'm going to steal that one from you, Miles. I'm taking down your one-liner. <laughs> the check, it's not a gift. And they want something in return. Let me, let, let's talk about that because there was another great story in, in, in your book here. You know, for a guy who fancies himself, you know, kind of anti-establishment, right, and a bit of a rebel, and you are, right, I found it interesting that you developed some very strong relationships with some very strong and opinionated bankers, Lucien Grange on the publishing side, and a gentleman that was referred to as Mad Dog Munns, who is the <laughs> label chief, the managing director, as, as, as they say over in the UK, uh, who had no problem expressing his opinion and with a bunch of stroppy young fucks like you had no problem at all jumping your train. Talk about your, your, your first meeting with Dave Munns and then when he decided to uh, bust into your little indie party after he'd handed you a pocket full of dough. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Munzi, as we referred to him, uh, was the managing director or president of Polydor Records in the UK when we signed. Now, the, the, the day that we signed to them, the day started in a pub just down the road, us being English, uh, <laughs> just down the road from the actual record company building where we were going to actually lay the signatures down and pop the champagne. And um, I'd never met David Munz, and he, you know, he, he had sort of unkempt hair. It wasn't long, but it was just a mess, and his beard was a bit of a mess, and his shirt didn't tuck in the back of his pants or his trousers. It's just a bit of a mess, really. And um, he sat next to me in the pub, say, hey, you know, how you feel? I had no idea who he was at this point, by the way. And he says, how are you feeling about signing a major record deal? And me being me, like, well... Half of me is kind of pleased because you know we'll have some money to make an album, but actually it's a bigger half. More than a half of me is kind of pissed off because I don't really want to be part of the music business machine. I've always seen us as an indie band that we'd make our own decisions and blah blah blah. So really, mate, I'm not that excited about signing to Polydor. And then when we get, we've walked up the street and we get to the office, it turns out he's the fucking managing director. And I'm just told, I don't really care about signing to your label. Uh, so that was interesting. And then uh, latterly, when, when we put a single out in 1989, every time we put four singles out with Polydor by this time, and every time we put a single out, the label would say to us, can you come up with a second week format, right? So quick explanation of that is a format could be anything that's uh, that the single is packaged in a different way, be it a CD single or a 7-inch or a 12-inch, packaged in a different way on the second week than it was in the first week. It could have a poster with the second week version. It could have a different B-side. It could have a badge. It, you know, any of this, which I basically saw as ripping off your fans because all you are essentially doing is selling the same kid the same thing twice. The label wants you to do this, not because there's any money in it, but it keeps you in whatever chart you've managed to get into for a second week, which then might help your radio play build. So there is a, there's a reason and there's a science to it, but I didn't give a fuck about the reason or the science. I gave a fuck about ripping off our fans. So we wouldn't do, we would flatly refuse to do second week formats. So on our fifth single for Polydor, I walked down to my local record shop. I'm in the Midlands in the town of Warsaw. And uh, my friend in the record shop goes, hey, I didn't know you'd done a second week format with this single. And I'm looking at this record sleeve. Yeah, I don't right. fucking record. I'm like, we didn't design that record. What the fuck is this record sleeve? So I run back up the road up to my house and I phone my manager, Dave, and I'm like, those fucking assholes at Polydor, they fucking stuck out a second week, um, you know, format without asking us. They're cunts, I'm gonna fucking, you know, blah, blah, blah. My manager let me finish and he eventually said, I actually knew about this. And I'm like, why didn't you fucking tell me? Why didn't you stop me? Because there was a way of stopping this because this wasn't the marketing department. This was the head of the company made this call. And he knew that I would go insane about it, but he just said, I'm making this call. And then Miles Hunter's got no fucking choice but to come down to come down to London, sit in front of me, and we're going to sort this out, which was really, really clever, um, clever way of handling me. I didn't appreciate it at the time, I must say. But he he said, let's go for a you know curry. So the band, all the band go. He he comes, our management come. He's the head of A and R comes to this meeting, and David Munz Munz he says to me, tell me why you're pissed off with me. 
So I just told him all of that. You're a cunt for doing this to me. I fucking get to look after our fans. You don't get to make these fucking decisions. So oh, he also said to me, um, you know, you can say anything you want to me. I won't interrupt. But when you've finished, I'm going to say what I need to say to you. And you can't interrupt. So we, we honoured each other's agreements. And at the end of what he had to say to me, he explained the reasoning behind second week uh, formats. He didn't punch me out, which I think uh, I totally deserved for calling him, you know, the, the boss of the company, a cunt to his face. And we went away with uh, with a new agreement. Uh, and the agreement was, we will go away, the band will go away, and we'll think about second week formats that we might be able to do. And we did think about it, but we never came up with anything for them. Yeah. But you know, he he wield he his power at us in a, in a really you know in a decent way that I think now and then. Bizarrely enough, that weird second week record sleeve is a collector's item now. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> how artists, you know, it, it, and it all goes speaks to this whole you know intersection of art and commerce, right? You know, art starts as this emotional thing, and it's pure in its form. But, you know, sadly or realistically, as soon as you take a song and want other people to hear it, want other people to support it, want other people to feel good about it, you enter, there used to be a TV show called The Twilight Zone, but that's the music it. business. And, and, uh, and for years, I've told artists, that decision, do I go and put it out for judgment, do I ask for support, is yours and yours alone, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But don't think if you decide that you want more, that it's your decision. You got to be conscious that money wants an opinion. And in the yeah. case of Dave Munz, who was a particularly colorful guy, I read that story and felt somewhat vindicated, Moss, because I have put myself in exactly that position numerous times, just like Dave Aldridge, where the band guys came unglued, and I won't mention any names, and one artist who wanted to be on MTV who did a video that didn't have the band in it. Right. And I called up the record company. I go, you fucking guys put the band in this. Well, what happens to the band? I said, I'll fucking deal with the band. And I'll never forget, I'm driving out of the golf course one day and Singer calls me up, just fucking coming unhinged, right? Dude, who fucking did it? The irony was, Miles, he wanted it to be on MTV. It got on MTV, right? So we win but he didn't like the way we did it. And like Dave Aldridge, I called him up later and said, okay, I'm not gonna bullshit you, B. I've never lied to you. I fucking told him to do it. And, and I reckon that the only way it'd ever be a problem is if we got on, U on MTV, and I thought that you'd be smart enough to see that sometimes it... <laughs> no. I, I was on email only fucking lockdown for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes I think the, the, the role of... Uh... The role of the manager is interpreter. You know, you're the interpreter. It's a different language that, you know, David Munns and Lucian Grange, they were very good at, I'm sure this is the way they looked at it, and coming down to my level, you know, be, being a nice guy with me and pretending that we're all in the trenches together. But when my but when my ears weren't around, I'm sure they were screaming, fucking prick, Miles, and blah, blah, well, blah. I, I will share with you, Miles, uh, and the folks here, that my first conversation was Lucy and Grange and David Munns because I was hired, and we'll talk in a second about, you know, how, you know, I came into your picture here, right? But... Uh, I was called by David Munns and Lucy and Grange early in the morning, and clearly they'd both been to the pub and were fucking lit up. 
And they go, so, you're the fucking guy who's going to fucking take care of America. I go, yeah, nice to see you, Dave. Nice to meet you guys. And they go, well, here's the fucking deal. We'll give you your 3,000 quid or whatever they were paying me out of your money, right? Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you, you get that fucking bloody C word to fucking fact all the fucking ignore. And they were just on and on and on and on. And I just said, guys, I got it. Got it. I got it. I'm not an indie guy. I got it. I'm, I, I, yeah, I got yeah. it. And uh, so, yes, they did. But I, I will also say that they genuinely cared about you. And sometimes artists lose yeah. track. The same way you lose track, sometimes your parents are trying to do the right thing. And I learned something as a manager, which we talked about the other day, that um, sometimes doing the right thing as a manager or a label exec means you're going to walk right into hellfire. And if that bothers you, don't take the fucking gig because you're going to have to get used to everybody thinking that they hate you. And that was the part of the story I love that, well, in that moment, I could only imagine in my head you going off, right? But the <laughs> fact that you, you walked away and thought about it at the big picture level um, was, was, was important. And for all the artists out yeah. there looking today, uh, remember what Miles said, the money's not a gift. Money wants an opinion. And at the very least, you have to be respectful in considering that or you will be writing your exit plan and not even yeah. know it. I think one thing that would be useful that uh, I think once a, a, an, an artist has entered in to an agreement with someone that's giving them money to, to uh, enable them to create their art, they're no longer just an artist. They're a commercial artist. You, you've turned a big corner once you've made that deal. And um, I, I think I could have probably been reminded of that a, a few times when I was younger. I'm very aware of it now. Yeah, well, with, with experience, you know, it's funny. I was at, uh, somewhere with my son the other day, and we were out at a, at a golf club, and we're sitting with a bunch of older guys that are all very successful. And, and different things would come up, and all of them would go, I don't know shit. I, I, I'm trying to figure out, I don't fucking know shit. So as we came home, my, dad, my son says to me, he goes, you know, Dad, one of these guys was a big-time agent, a guy named Patrick Weitzel, right? He runs probably the biggest, most powerful agency around. And he said, you know what's interesting, Dad, is listening to you and all your buddies. If I didn't know about it, you guys are all talking about how you don't know shit. And I said, yeah, you and all your 21-year-old buddies are talking about how you know everything. What do you think the reckon the moral of that story is, Matt? Youth and enthusiasm is great. Experience is actually better. And the bitch about experience, it takes time to get it unless you hang out with smarter, more talented people than yourself and listen, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, one final thing I want to talk about before we go. Um, you and I have had this discussion. We'll share with these folks here. You know, one of the things that I've learned, somebody asked me, you know, what, what have I learned over the years working with artists? And, uh, and one of the things I've learned is that the decisions you make after the music is made, you know, can have as big an impact or more than the music itself. And, and I think probably, and you have the, the benefit of experience now in perspective. Nobody would know that better than you, without recounting all uh, the things that, that 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 were a little bit less than the traditional approach, I'll say. You know, walk, <laughs> yeah. walking off gigs, canceling shows, um, you know, not going on top of the pops live show. I'm not trying to fucking horrify you. I can uh, take it, Randy. I can take the it. great little story you told of the little girl who came up to you uh, after watching all your posters spread around London and ask you for an autograph and you uh, suggested less than gently that that, that that wasn't something you were interested in, you know? Um, you know, 
What advice would you give for people in that moment, right, when things are starting to get crazy? Because there, there's something to be said that artists, and particularly the front men of, of bands, um, that the success and everything brings with it expectations. It stokes fear and insecurity and paranoia and, and sometimes takes you to a very dark place, you know. How, what advice would you give to somebody today at 50 years old that you just couldn't see when you were 22? Uh, have good grace, I think. You know, actually have, have good grace. I, I was quick to, to, to shout people down. You know, I, I spend time around um, a young band from Manchester at the moment. They're great. They're just signed to uh, Warners in the U.S., uh, called the lottery winners and they just have this lovely a lovely sense of communication with, with the audience that are into them you know they're they're, they're, they're young you know they're half my age and uh, i i kind of wasn't like like that i that like you just described that the paranoia of meeting somebody on the street that knows me but i have no fucking clue who they are that that imbalance seems a little scary uh, and i didn't I just wanted to be in a guy in a band with, with his mates and, and making a noise. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't have anything to say, uh, per se. Um, just have good grace and appreciate who your who your audience are. And and then there was another great one that was, uh, you know, be, be careful what you say when you're on the on the way up. This was probably something you taught me. You yeah. know, be careful what you say to people or about people on your way up, because you never know who you're going to meet on the other side of that hill. You know, the peaks and troughs, and there's plenty of them to to face. So have good grace, I, I guess is it. Yeah, it's, it's good advice there, I'll say. We got a couple more questions here that kind of speak with this whole idea of, of the, 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 the tricky part of being a band. There was a question here. Let me see if I can get it up on the screen here. Um, okay, this is one that I think a lot of folks want to know. It's, uh, the question was from uh, Ryan Hendricks, another one of those Pitt State gorillas out there in Kansas. God bless you, man. I was curious as to why his band, The Wonder Stuff, originally broke up and later decided to reunite. Uh, I'm also incredibly intrigued by the image Mr. Hunt has as well as The Wonder Stuff portray. In three words, how would you describe that image? I'm afraid to ask, but three words. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I suppose antagonistic would be in there, but, you, you, you know, it's... Um, it's it's showbiz antagonistic, you know. It's it's a game, you know. I don't, I don't actually want to walk around disagreeing and arguing with people in real life. Uh, you know, I I was inspired by particularly, I, I guess, uh, Johnny Rotten or John Lydon, Sex Pistols, Public Image Limited, and uh, it, and also it, it was being the sort of angsty guy protected the real me, the shy me uh, that that I'd been when I was a kid. So having this. You know, people going, fucking hell, you know, don't upset Miles Hunt kind of thing worked for me because it meant that I had less interaction with people in general. Um, why did the Wonder Stuff break up in 94? It was, for me, it was easy. I just couldn't stand to be around those guys anymore. Uh, the, the band members, sad to say. Um, I think it's a completely unnatural thing to spend eight years in, in the pockets of the same four or five people. Um, you know, if you've, if you've not been in a rock band uh, or, or, or anything close to, you generally, after high school or college, you 
eight years later, you're not going to be living with the same four guys working with the same. It's very, very unnatural. And so I think I'm, I'm allowed to say I couldn't stand being around those guys any longer. Uh, and that, that's why I, I, I handed in my resignation in uh, 1994. And then why did we reform? Because I had six years away from them. And uh, I sort of, I'd, I'd forgotten <laughs> how fractious our relationships could be. And an offer came from a promoter that said, you know, you could do X amount of nights at this venue in London and you could earn this X amount of money. And it really wasn't the money that tempted me back in. It, it was, yeah, I'm ready to stand there and play those songs again. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd not... Retired from the music business, I had another band called Vent 414, and then I started on my sort of acoustic travels around America for two years in the interim period. But um, I, I was ready to go back into the Wonder Stuff. And since 2000, um, you could laughably accuse the Wonder Stuff of having a revolving door of, of members now, but it, there's, there's only me left from the originals. Um, but a bass player's been with us for, uh, wow, probably 11 or 12 years. Eric has been with us for over 10 years. Uh, which is longer than the original Wonder Stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, even existed for. So it uh, feels like a very comfortable place to me. But, um, yeah, I hope that yeah. those answer questions. Well, it's funny. Uh, we're just going to wrap it up here because we're going long. I knew we'd go forever. So um, it's funny as I was listening on Spotify, folks, for mm -hmm. all the people that don't want to have their music on Spotify because they're going to get fucked. I was listening to Spotify because it's just easy. And I was listening to the 8 Blake Groove Machine and I was reminded of a great song and I remember the first time I listened to those that album when somebody probably Ian Wilson sent it to me there was a track on there called Rue the Day mm -hmm. which is you know decidedly different than the other kind of revved up stuff and maybe it was the first hint of the more um, introspective rather than wound up Miles Hunt and there yeah, was, a, there was there something were, else to the band other than just rocking out yeah but there was a yeah. lyric in there that that I think you know kind of for me, summed up in retrospect, you know, um, that sometimes difficult place of being in the bubble and not knowing where to go. And it was something along the lines, I wish I'd been somewhere else today, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. did that, in, in that, not that you wrote that at the time, but does that in some way kind of represent at the big picture level that whole difficulty you had sometimes with the business? Well, uh, the surprise here is I didn't write that one. I, I wrote all the lyrics on that album apart from that one. That was written by Big Bad Scary Bob Jones wrote that lyric. No, That's no. the sensitive side of uh, of Rob coming no out. No way. But, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. Yesterday, I, I went and did something that involved being outdoors and being freezing cold for a while yesterday. And it, I was put in mind of... Uh, when I, when I used to be the garbage collector, you know, uh, litter picker when I was a kid. And I'd, you know, spend all day outside, all, all sorts of weathers, just cleaning shit up. Uh, and just standing when my toes were freezing yesterday, my hands were freezing. I was standing outside for far too long. And I thought, you know, I've got to catch myself next time I find myself moaning about being in a band. Because at least I ain't digging ditches for the fucking council. Because, you know. Can I tell it, you something? And it's interesting. And I'll, I will kind of wind this up. And then I'll, first I'll show how you can buy this fine, fine book. Did I mention the book here? <laughs> and I've resisted the temptation to mention our course here, you know. Um, that analogy you just used there, right? When, when band members who shall remain nameless would talk about how tough it was being in a band. You know, there was a day we were walking out in Manhattan. I know you love Manhattan, and so you'll 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 have a vivid picture of this. 
one of those public works guys sweating his ass off with a fucking jackhammer and bouncing his fucking belly up and down. And I walked by him, I said, you know what? That is a tough fucking job right there. And I said, you know what? I want to hear, I want to be sympathetic to you. I said, but one day, and I've seen it so many times and probably was thinking a little bit about you and some other bands I've worked with. One day you're going to look back and rue the day that you ever thought this qualified as work, to do something yeah. for money that you would gladly have done for free. One day you will rue the day that this felt like work. And to yeah. hear you say it today just makes me think that I wasn't the crazy one, you know. But pers <laughs> perspective, um, it, it, would be interesting. it would be better if it came earlier for everybody. But sadly, um, you know, that old saying that youth, uh, you know, youth is wasted on the young is, uh, <laughs> yes. is, is probably true. Um, yeah. Miles, I want to thank you so much uh, for yeah, being uh, on the show today. And uh, really, folks, I'm going to leave a link. Kira has already put it on the page. This, if, if you're a young artist or a young manager thinking about getting in the business and... Um, and you want to study the business for a mere 30 quid. I don't know what that's worth today. Has it gone up or down since Brexit? You see all my, this, these yellow notes will not come with the book, however. Um, it's a great story of a band, but also a great story of what it's like to really be in a band and, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm.